0: The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey. (sighs) Well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better. And dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello, we know Ian Fleming and his Cold War creation James Bond, and we know John Le Carré and a million others who followed in his footsteps. But what about the predecessors, the ones who came before? Most of us are familiar with Graham Greene, perhaps, and his novels of intrigue are very good, but he was not alone. A whole lot of British authors were there at the same time, or even earlier, writing about politics and war and the dark arts of assassination, blackmail, subterfuge, secrets, and the toppling of regimes. Not great stuff for the world, perhaps, but delicious for nightstands with lamps, the lamp of a single naked bulb, perhaps, which as you read these spy novels you might glance over at now and then, thinking... There's a heat source. If I need to check a document for invisible ink, that might do the trick. More seriously, you might ask, what country am I living in? And is it a part of a continent? Where are the boundaries? Who are the people in it? How are we all living? Who's running things on the surface and beneath? And are there heroes or at least average people capable of heroism on occasion? Who can make this all turn out okay? The 1930s, Europe on the Eve of War, and spy novels. And our guest, journalist, and PhD candidate at the University of Cambridge, Juliet Breton, here to help us sort things out. All that's coming up today on the History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson. We are traveling to the 1930s today. That's one of those trembling periods in history where the kettle is rumbling but not yet in full scream. It would be screaming soon enough as war broke out in Europe. That's a full-blown explosive kind of scream. World War II, all that steam pouring out through the lid, exhausting the water within. In the 1930s, the energy is mostly potential. The Spanish Civil War and darkness on the horizon all over Europe. But there's still uncertainty about what we now view as nearly inevitable. Hitler wasn't going to stop until he was stopped. But that's later. For now, smart people are looking around and saying, What is happening? Europe looks fluid. Central Eastern Europe in particular. Who's in charge? What's holding these things together? What does it mean for a very close island nation to the Northwest, which has a sprawling empire still, the memory of a great war not long receded, and a Great Depression in a kind of double helix relationship with a rising interest in socialism? Modernists stop looking just at London and start looking at the continent. Graham Greene travels across the continent by train and writes about it in Train*, documenting the unease across the region and the danger. Christopher Isherwood sings a swan song to Weimar, Germany. And then the three writers that Juliet Breton advances for us, Rex Warner, Eric Ambler, and Jeffrey Household. Of the three, I was familiar with Eric Ambler from his book A Coffin for Dimitrios, widely viewed as a masterpiece in its field. And a listener, one of our illustrious author listeners, who wished to remain behind the scenes, so I won't name her here, but she recommended to me Jeffrey Household's Rogue Mail a few years ago. That book, (laughs) Rogue Mail, that book is like no other, at least no other book that I've read. I had this idea once, you could make a whole movie about a chase, just two people running. The entire movie across different landscapes. Sometimes they'd be close, sometimes far. And you'd never know who those two were or why they were engaged in this death struggle. I wanted no backstory in my movie, no narration, just the simplicity of the chase. Man versus man, men versus nature, and for each of them, man versus self, running as fast as they could, nonstop, covering territory, crossing every boundary, and no other explanation. Well, Household's book is kind of like that in parts. It's It's, it's got a little more backstory. It's ostensibly about a bungled, maybe not even attempted assassination of a Hitler-like figure. And then A guy goes on the run, and you see him try to survive as he's tortured, thrown over a cliff, and left for dead. But he's not dead. He's alive, and he's on the run. Let the chase begin. This is a period I really love. These 1930s novels, the Graham Greene and George Orwell and Evelyn Waugh era, the black and white films, the radio broadcasts, London Before the Blitz. It's the era of my grandparents when they were young and strong and hoping to make their way in a tough world. Eager to survive, hoping for better days ahead. Not sure at all that better days would come. Naive enough to be optimistic. Moral enough to have real values, but also cynical as hell. Often we get detectives from this period, hard-boiled and half-corrupt and decent, but not always. If you like cops and crime, detectives roaming the city will be your thing. But if you like politics, and ideals, and isms, and international intrigue, then you head for the shadows along the border, and you look for the spies. Juliet Breton. After this, hey grown-ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Follow the Cat in the Hatcast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hatcast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, joining me now is Juliet Breton, a journalist and PhD candidate at the University of Cambridge who specializes in European literature in the early 20th century. She's been featured on the BBC World Service and has written for many publications. She's here today to talk about Europe on the eve of war in the 1930s, and in particular, how three British authors responded to the rising tensions on the continent. Juliet Breton, welcome to the History of Literature.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: So let's set the stage a little bit first. It's the 1930s and British writers are looking at the continent. What are they seeing develop?
1: Yeah, this is a, a really interesting question. I mean, in ways this kind of development that's in the nineteen thirties, the tensions building to war, were well, actually in years before, the decades before. So it's we might consider that these tensions had actually been in place since World War One or even before World War One. I. I think there's a tendency to view you know the 1920s, in particular. We think of the Great Gatsby. We think of optimism and and hope in society and in literature. T. S. Eliot, for example, writes articles where he talks about how the literature following the First World War is a kind of you know aiming to create a new world and a, a new style. But we can also argue that the war, the First World War, led directly and indirectly to more unrest um, in Europe particularly. So things like local conflicts, territorial disputes, corruption and poverty, um, things like the failure of diplomacy to maintain peace. There's so much emphasis on the Treaty of Versailles and on the League of Nations and eventually those things crumble. You know, the rise of dictatorships as well when countries are facing economic difficulty and political unrest, that's when dictatorships and totalitarian rule becomes kind of appealing to people. So. I think we might, first of all, think that this is actually something that the scene is set way before the 1930s. And secondly, this is occurring across the continent.
0: Right. That's what I was going to ask, because everything you said, I'm familiar with in terms of Germany. And there's a sort of, you know, we all learn at a young age, the idea that World War II was kind of the product of the Germans feeling mistreated after World War One. But you expand that to include other countries and, and regions as well. And, and my guess is for someone, you know, no one can predict the future. It's not as if they were They might have been looking at Germany as well, but they were seeing it in the context of a lot of different shifting states and allegiances and politics rising and falling in all different places.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, we might think of Western Europe of places like Spain. So the Spanish Civil War in the late 1930s, and this broke out after years of political instability in the region and economic difficulties as well. And it's been kind of variously described as a battle between fascism and communism or democracy and dictatorship. But it also had an impact on British writers. So there's this real interest in British artistic circles as to what's happening and this sort of uniting against fascism even before the Second World War. I think it was in nineteen thirty seven there's a pamphlet that's created called Authors Take Sides on the Spanish War and it includes perspectives from people like Eliot, Ezra Pound, Samuel Beckett and they all give their views on what's going on and, and many of them are pro government and they you know, coming down on you know, fascism and saying it's completely wrong and, you know, trying to repress what's going on in Spain. We also might think further east, places like Russia, and how the kind of the communist message, socialist message was, you know, quite appealing to a lot of writers in Britain. They felt that this idea of revolution and, you know, immediate change, immediate upheaval might be better for the country than kind of slow burn reformism.
0: Well, and there's also the Great Depression.
1: Exactly. Yeah. And and things like territorial disputes Mm. as well. I mean, the map of Europe obviously changes considerably during, you know, before the First World War and after the First World War. But those border disputes aren't settled. So there are local conflicts breaking out in central eastern europe there's you know germany i mean the nazi party trying to you know produce propaganda to reclaim areas that have been given to other countries where there were strong ethnic german populations right. so it's a kind of i mean it really is a a continent full of trouble both political economic social geographical and i think that there are certain storm clouds that british writers are responding to like the rise of fascism and totalitarianism but i think there's also a fear of another war breaking out and the causes that might lead to that. You know, do you decide to arm your country? Right. Or is that just going to provoke more tensions kind of thing?
0: How is that represented in the works of someone like a Christopher Isherwood or a Graham Greene?
1: Yeah, I mean, Isherwood um, is a a very interesting figure. He was an Anglo-American novelist. He was writing within what's been called the Auden Group. So he was linked to people like um, Auden, Louis McNeice, Mm. um, Stephen Spender and so on. They all came from quite a similar background. They were all left-leaning and they all promoted a kind of experimental way of doing writing and doing the novel and doing poetry in the 1930s. Isherwood moves to Berlin in the late 1920s and he discovers there, he says he's found his tribe of people who are interested in sexual freedom and particularly in gay culture. Mm-hmm. And he writes a novel in it's published in 1939 called Goodbye to Berlin. So it is this kind of elegy for... Germany that is lost, and this is Weimar Germany, where, yes, there was corruption, yes, there was poverty, but there was also a sense of sexual freedom, pleasure, people going to the cabaret, people engaging with jazz, you know, this kind of more liberated world, perhaps the more optimistic world that we might think of, that the 1920s and 1930s part of that culture was. Right. And goodbye to Berlin, yes, it has those more positive elements, but there's also this backdrop of poverty and of the rise of fascism.
0: Right. Now, Hitler was in power by then. He was the chancellor of Germany in 1933. And they had annexed Czechoslovakia and Austria by 1938. They invaded Poland September of 1939. And it sounds like that was basically enough for Isherwood to say, the Weimar period is over. The old way is lost. We're headed for something. Was he predicting war specifically or just an uneasiness with change and, and what was coming?
1: I think it's more of a an uneasiness. Yeah. I think there's still this uncertainty about whether war is going to happen, right. where it's going to break out, this kind of thing. But I think it's also perhaps, you know, an even greater worry is this sense of, is anyone in control of the situation? Who is in control? Is anyone in control? What are the real motives behind small political events? You know, when land is gained to be to become part of the German Empire, is that building up political strength to... You know, suddenly invade another nation and cause another world war, or is it just is it just part of defence? So yeah, I mean, I think it's it's quite a complex picture. Certainly, if we think about other authors like Graham Greene, he's also interested in what's going on in the continent. He writes a series of novels in the 1930s about travel across Europe or about people being hired to kill um European ministers. But it's never quite certain who the you know the main actors are who's causing all this they're all under pseudonyms or we're not really invested in any particular character so it's the sense of who do you trust firstly. And who's pulling the puppet strings, I think, is a a nice analogy for it.
0: Yeah. And there's such a, I mean, it's easy to look back from a perspective of history and basically say, where was this author in terms of Hitler? Did they criticize him or were they praising him and kind of not dig that much deeper than that? But I've lived through a couple of wars as a as an American adult and as a novelist if you're looking at the people around you there's so many different ways to approach something like an approaching war and there's some people who are cautioning against it there are some people who have maybe lived through other wars and saying this is always a mistake there's also people who are kind of giddy or journalists who are excited about the prospects of change and maybe they they nod to war being devastating but they also kind of think think, this is going to be a big story for me. Or, you know, there might be young people who think this is my chance to test my courage and to be patriotic or, you know, yeah. or, or get rich. I mean, there's lots of people who look at it that way. Or, you know, there's parents who are terrified of what this is going to mean for their young sons, and now I guess sons and daughters. But I guess the question is, would you say that the writers that you looked at in Britain in the 1930s, were they prophets? Were they ahead of society? Were they urging war? Were they trying to put on the brakes and saying you guys aren't taking this seriously enough? Or what are they doing that's different from what society and the politicians were doing?
1: That's a really interesting question. And I think if we think about these writers as being ahead of society, you know, that might imply that they have something to teach or that they know the direction of where things are going. I, I don't think they do. Mm. I don't think, I mean, I, I think there is a sense of, you know, yes, there's fear about what could happen for sure. But there's also a real kind of detachment. I mean, going back to Isherwood, goodbye to Berlin, begins with this very famous quote where Isherwood is is, um, describing looking out of a window and he says that he's a, I am a camera, passive, recording, not thinking. So it's the sense of almost removing yourself from the situation. They're just trying to present what's happening and not kind of moralise or have any kind of idealistic viewpoint. They're just saying... It. And, and I think we this kind of plays out with a lot of the characters as well. The moral dilemmas in a lot of these novels are quite muddied. Uh-huh. You never know who's in the right or who's in the wrong. The spaces of these novels that these novels take place in, we're seeing... Yes, we're seeing Europe, but a lot of the time it's kind of anonymised or fictionalised areas of Europe. So it's, it's the sense of, yes, there's danger, yes, there's threat and, and, and fear and chaos potentially on the horizon, but we don't know where it's coming from and we don't know where it's going. So all they can do is write. Which is
0: kind of what we would want from an artist, right? We That would yeah. be our expectation is that they wouldn't be polemical or we're trying to urge people into one political position or another or how to treat a situation. That's sort of left to the people who are writing for the newspapers on a daily basis or who are, you know, writing for an influential magazine or something. But as far as a novel goes, we want them to reflect Society and how sort of the state of mind of people and different positions yes. taken by different people and seeing how that plays out in human terms.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, this isn't to say that they don't you know, come down hard on some elements of society. A lot of these novels have kind of implicit critiques of, for example, the links between the government and the military and you know private armaments companies, or on propaganda, or capitalism, or in other people. You get know, this kind of sense of you know who do you trust. Who's your friend? Who's your enemy? Can we distinguish between the two kind of thing? Um, But yeah, I mean, I I think generally these works are giving more of a a kind of abstract idea of of contemporary Europe and and what could potentially happen. Um, And I wonder why they, you know, this sense of imagining European nations, whether that was to kind of free themselves from the constraints of reality you know, how do you write a novel has a long gestational period, and then you've got to get it published. So by the time you publish it, events might be out of date. So maybe you have to keep it general. Or maybe it was fear of provoking a diplomatic incident. If you suddenly write a novel about, you know, totalitarian systems in Germany, that might not go down well.
0: Right. Well, I have two more questions before we get to our big three that we're going to be talking about today. So one of them you touched on briefly already, and that is the British conception of Europe as a place Uh, how were they looking at europe as a continent and as a set of nations within a continent how fixed was their view
1: yeah i mean i I think things definitely change um following world war one we look at the map of europe from before 1914 we see these big um sort of vast expanses of empire the prussian empire austro-hungarian empire russian empire and then following the war things just fragment Mm. into individual states each state has, you know, different politics, different belief system, vying for territory. It seems more chaotic to the British observer. But also I think the war brings Europe closer in a way. Before the war, yes, there is interest in Europe, but there's more of a kind of imperial interest in what's going on beyond Europe. And then suddenly they're embroiled in a world war. There are attacks on British land from Zeppelins during World War One. And then after the war, there's this urgent need to be invested in a pan-European peace because they don't want it to happen again. So I think this sense of a growing intimacy between Britain and Europe as well um, in that period.
0: Well, that brings me to my second question, which is what was the British attitude toward empire? in the 1930s. Things definitely seem to have coalesced, I guess I could say, in uh, World War II and kind of this is what this is going to mean for us in terms of empire. But was that feeling already beginning in the 1930s that that the empire was maybe not something that Britain could hang on to?
2: Yeah,
1: I I think so. I mean, certainly, I think there's a rising need to have allegiances. So Britain comes from this practice of blended isolation in the 19th century, where they don't go into allegiances with anybody. And then suddenly, they're seeing Germany rising as a power, they're seeing Russia rising as a power. And they think, you know, we, we need to suddenly team up with people. We can't carry on on our own, we're leaving ourselves too exposed. And then he's closer to home as well, there's, um, you know, Irish Republicanism in the middle of the First World War as well. And so, you know, we, we're seeing this kind of combined effect of external and you know further and closer um, nations that are disrupting this imperial idea. Then obviously following the war there's you know a period of economic decline, military decline. And I think I think yeah, for, for Brits there was this sense of, you know, we're losing this imperial empire that we built up. Um, A lot of nations like Canada, Australia, New Zealand start having self-governance in terms of their own politics. They're no longer controlled by the British Empire. So I think that's another factor in this kind of sense of the world is fragmenting and yeah. Yeah,
0: right. I was going to say for the novelists, it's yet more reason to be uneasy, whether you think that's a good thing or a bad thing. Either way, it's a period of uncertainty. And well, even if you want it to end, you aren't positive what's going to replace it or what life is going to be like when it's gone.
1: Exactly. And the structures have just completely collapsed. All of the traditions of old, both in society and in in literature, right, in the three forms. So, yeah, it's a real kind of turning point, I think.
0: Okay, well, let's take a quick break and then we'll come back and talk about three writers in particular and how they viewed these issues. (laughs) Okay, we are back with Juliet Breton. We are going to look at Rex Warner, Eric Ambler, and Jeffrey Household. And let me just tell you, Eric Ambler is an old favorite of mine. I view him as sort of Graham Greene's Graham Greene. And uh, Jeffrey Household, I didn't know except after I started this show, a friend of the show wrote me an email and urged me to read Rogue Mail, which I then did and found that to be kind of an incredible book that I'm not sure it has a, an equivalent. Rex Warner, I just been looking up since you mentioned him to me. So, tell us about those three. Why did you choose them and what were they doing?
1: Yeah, um I mean for two main reasons. I think they're still quite unknown. I mean Eric Ambler probably the most known out of the three, but I think people still don't really Still aren't really aware of Rex Warner,
0: and uh, he's a little bit of a deep dive, a deep track.
1: Yeah, absolutely. But he's quite interested in European literature, and the influence of Kafka, and so on. He owes quite a lot to Kafka, and then Geoffrey Household. I mean, I mean, I think they're all all three of them generally are kind of playing with the conventions of thriller novels in particular, yeah. possibly spy novels as right. well. But this sense of rogue male, for example, it begins with this British sportsman going to a foreign country. It looks like he's going to assassinate the dictator, <laughs> but he actually just wants to have him in the sight of his his telescope. He doesn't really want to, we, we're never sure whether he wants to assassinate him yeah. or not. So it's this sense of playing with the conventions of that genre and how questions of genre shape knowledge and shape our relation to the world, I think is, is the most important thing. In Ambler, for example, a lot of his protagonists and his heroes are accidental. They're not spies, they're not trained. They're complete amateurs who just kind of stumble into situations and suddenly have to you know, be invested in the geopolitics of the region. And Rex Warner is using fantastical allegorical imagery to describe things like communism and revolution. But it's never... I mean, his, his opinion of communism changes through his works in the 1930s as well. So I think they're all responding to, you know, the idea of how knowledge about the world is shaped and kind of worldviews that we hold and how those worldviews might change. Or be structured and how we might critique the structures.
0: Do you view them as kind of opportunists in a way that they are were essentially thriller writers who saw this as being really fertile ground for, uh, oh, wow, this is where the action is. If I want to write a, you know, have a a bestseller or something that's very readable, this is the place for me to place it because there are so many shadows and the stakes are so high with different governments rising and falling and so on.
1: Yeah, I think so. I think, you know, certainly to a degree, they're all wanting to write novels that are entertaining. And, you know, we're sort of thrust into the action immediately in a lot of these works. There's no kind of preamble. So, yeah, I mean, I think they do see the region as being, particularly the Central Eastern European region, as being this sense of, you know, knowledge about Central Eastern Europe and Britain is limited at the time. There's, like you say, you know, kind of political intrigue senses of danger and thrills and the opportunities that you can make from, you know, monetary particularly, that you can make if you're involved with this region. So, yeah, I think they are, I think they are, they are coming from that perspective. But they're also coming from a perspective of perhaps wanting to critique idealistic, romanticised views of, of what's going on. So, for example, Rex Warner, his second novel, The Professor, which he writes, is in ways this more, it's a darker take on communism and the communist ideal that there are characters who believe in communism and revolution in the novel but they're not depicted in the most you know idealistic way so i think it is this critique as well of of those those ideals and where they could potentially lead
0: how much of the critique of communism is anti-stalinism
1: i think to a degree it's more just generally a critique of, of how revolution might not be the best way forward or might... I mean, the the revolutionary character in The Professor is is the eponymous professor's son, and he's described as being quite ignorant and quite disruptive. And then there's a scene where he's with his girlfriend in a forest, and they're talking about revolution, and they're deciding that they don't want to be in love, because they're in love with the idea of revolution, and that kind of supersedes human love. So it's the sense of, you know, actually, if you're believing in something like communism or revolution, you're kind of replacing human feeling with wider abstract political ideals. So I think it's not so much against Stalinism. I think it's just generally against that idea, the idea of believing in political belief system as being something that could subsume the individual in a very negative way.
0: Right. Putting all your faith in an ideology and almost making yourself someone who would be available to be used by some leader or a group of leaders who are trying to almost uh, you turn off your judgment and just start blindly following some kind of ideal
1: yes exactly exactly and his earlier novel the wild goose chase is more perhaps more positive in terms of a kind of revolutionary ideal it, it follows three brothers who are chasing the wild geese and then at the end there's this kind of spoiler alert there's this uh, revolutionary town that's set up and that the emphasis is on not on the individual people, but on the kind of the body of the masses assembled in the in this sort of square outside. But even then, there's the novel ends with this feeling of you know we've still got work to do. So I think it's there's no sense of completion with these texts. They're more about you know this is only temporary. We're going to face struggles to come. And then in the professor, it's this sense of actually is it worth it?
0: Yeah. Have you read the reviews and the contemporary response to these books?
1: Yeah, I've, I've read some of them. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, yeah, with The the Professor, there's um, there are quite a few reviews which have, you know, kind of describe what's going on and compare it to what's going on in Eastern Europe and, and Central Eastern Europe. Yeah, I mean, I, I think certainly Rex Warner was seen as doing something very new with the novel. That's how fellow critics described him. He was adding a new dimension to the novel by not describing political events. You know realistically, but using fantasy as a way to to describe it and as a way to maybe describe what couldn't be articulated, what hadn't been settled yet.
0: I'm wondering in terms of their view of of Europe and the continent. How different is the contemporary response from one that you yourself might have, given that you were able to, you know, you have the benefit of all of the knowing what exactly happened and how close they were to getting things right or to warning about certain events? Mm-hmm. Do you feel like the critics are just missing the boat when they were reading it? They didn't see how, how forward looking these books were? Or does it seem like everyone was already kind of getting what was so resonant about these books?
1: Yeah, I think people were getting what was resonant at the time. Um, I mean, obviously, with the benefit of hindsight, we can see, you know, Eric Ambler, for example, there are predictions of things like, you know, global warfare nuclear bombs that might completely annihilate the human population. I mean, in ways, it's, I wonder whether contemporary critics were seeing what was happening in, like, Munich and then Munich Agreement and Czechoslovakia and Austria and this sense of just, you know, potentially that, that is where it could lead in terms of global conflict again. Yeah, I mean I I think in, in ways though these these authors are basing their works yes, there's a fantasy element, but they are basing it in in reports from Europe and in, in the real situation. So we see things like a mention of concentration camps and the, the first concentration camps established in Germany in the nineteen thirties. So there is a sense of of you know grounding it in in what what is really going on and maybe just saying you know this this could be the consequence of a political ideology like this and also the things like you know the kind of chance encounters and and innocent people being drawn into really nefarious situations that they have no control over or or no understanding of and how that might be comparable to in the second world war and the numerous innocent people who were you know drawn into conflicts between global powers
0: you also mentioned kafka earlier were they using literature that was coming out of central europe as a way of them trying to get insight into the continent
1: definitely i mean kafka is first translated into english in the 1930s there's this you know newspaper reviews which describe him as being quite incomprehensible (laughs) people don't really get it They're quite interested in what he's doing. And they think, you know, that when when it's first published, it's seen, I think it's advertised as being, you know, one of the major European novels of the trial. I mean, Kafka's the trial. But there is still this kind of hesitancy. It's unlike anything they've seen before. Warner, like I mentioned, was especially influenced by Kafka in terms of the really, you know, highly descriptive writing, highly descriptive prose, and the sense of, I think, kind of individual emotion and the Complexities of individual emotion, and that you might feel loyalty, but you might also feel a sense of guilt or of, you know, not wanting to give up your own ideals and so on. But then there are other authors too. So there's Czech writing that's translated. There are other German-speaking writers who are translated into English. There are British authors and critics who go and live in, like Isherwood and and others, who go and live in Europe, live in Central Eastern Europe, and are quite interested in promoting. European writing to British audiences and vice versa. There's a critic and publisher called George Revi who goes to Paris and he publishes quite a lot of British surrealism alongside European surrealism. So there are these these networks that are developing. And there are, I mean, I think another genre that's quite closely connected to what Warner and Household and Ambler are doing is is travel writing. So there are numerous authors. I mean, would obviously is a, one example, but we see people like Stephen Spender who writes about revolution in Vienna. We see the British surrealists Roland Penrose and Lee Miller who go to the Balkans and write this kind of very weird surrealist image diary about the Balkans called The Road is Wider Than Long. So I think there is this interest in how close Europe is, and in, in the sense of, you know, through the First World War, Britain is brought into a more intimate relation with Europe. And Yes, things have changed in terms of, I mean, the, the First World War, another, another factor that we haven't talked about is things like passports, that with the rise of nationalism and of countries wanting to defend their borders, this is when carrying a passport becomes you know, a really important document that gives you access to a country in terms of physical travel. But also in terms of your allegiance to that country. So in ways, these writers who are who are able to travel to Europe on British passports, which obviously might give them more access than than a European passport, you know, that they're responding to this change in the geography of the region as well. And then passports and frontiers and borders and going across borders secretly, obviously, comes up quite a lot in Amblo and Warner and Household as well.
0: So it's really not just the the state's relationship with one another but the individual relationship to the state. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Mm. Yeah.
0: So this is a might be an impossible question to answer. <laughs> but <laughs> from what you've seen of literature and the impact of literature on the society of the 1930s comparing that with how literature is used today and and its place in our society how much do you think has changed could literature play the same role in our world today that it played in the 1930s in britain
1: yeah i mean i think in many ways it's needed right so this sense of having you know literature as opening up different perspectives as encouraging empathy with different characters and as kind of unpicking the nuances that make people act the way they do, make people think the way they do, um, it gives us this opportunity to see how structures of power and rhetoric and propaganda are created and how we can critique it. So I think that is very needed in, in an era of contemporary politicians, I won't name names, but right. <laughs> you know, people who kind of have particular world views. To be able to undermine that and to be able to critique that, I think is very important. On the flip side, we might think that You know, actually, things have changed since the 1930s. There's an American writer called Alan First, who also writes a lot of fiction set in Europe of the 1930s. And he once gave an interview where he said that he writes about the 1930s because this is an era of, you know, where there are still relationships between humans. So it's people meeting each other, people giving documents to each other in person. Yeah,
2: right
1: contemporary world <laughs> is technology right <laughs>
2: so this yes. is you know
1: it's sending sending a file by computer it's a very different landscape you can't read a computer emotionally as you might be able to read someone's face emotionally you can't have the same relationship with a computer or a mobile phone as you can with a human being
0: right and just just in terms of plot I mean, there's so many things, you know, like if you look at how convenient it is to have something like a map or a photograph or, you know, one thing. I mean, there was a a Star Wars movie I went to. I can't remember which one it was. It was one of the the more recent ones. And they're in this futuristic society, but they've got everything saved to a disk. You know, because if you don't have a single disc, you know, if you just basically say, well, there's probably going to be if it's that important, there will probably be a 100 backup copies of it. You know, then you can't have a chase scene where you can grab the disc from the villain and destroy it. Yeah,
1: exactly. Exactly. And also, I think in another way, th- these novels are I mean, The Professor is quite short. That one one has a more pacey structure. But many of these novels are kind of 200 pages, 300 pages. And a lot of that is action. And a lot of it is the kind of preamble to the action. The kind of boring, you know, sifting through data, working out what you're going to do. You're waiting for somebody to appear. You've got to wait at the border for five hours. So it's this sense of you wouldn't get that same waiting and the paranoia that you're going to be discovered as you would in a novel where you can send a file in five seconds and you know it's done
0: (laughs) right here's the elephant in the room is literature even if it could play the same role because a novel certainly a novelist can be as talented and, and maybe even has more awareness of what a novel can do uh if people aren't reading and they're not looking to literature to kind of inform them, and it's not part of their lives, uh, can it matter? I mean, I don't know that, that world leaders are reading many novels, or, or uh, you know, society maybe isn't changing or, or developing views based on what their fiction writers are presenting for them.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's also things like, you know, even the kind of materiality of a book. We're seeing a change now to electronic novels where you can just swipe through and you're not getting that same feeling of going out, holding a book in your hands. I mean, my copy of The Professor, for example, is the the old Penguin edition. And this sense of being able to buy a book, look at how long it is, you can carry it, you can put it in your bag at work, you can Mm. you know, show it to people, you can feel the texture of the page and how things are presented on a page in a way that you might not be able to on a Kindle or on an electronic device
0: right when a when a book was published, there was this feeling of this is what I and others have available to us from this moment, kind of like a newspaper, you know, I think we've lost a lot of that where it used to be, oh, this was on this was a front page story for three days on the New York Times, like that was momentous, and I don't know that that's been replaced by you know, oh, this took Twitter by storm or something it It comes and goes so fast that uh I don't know that it has the same. Even though I'm generally against sort of the idea of gatekeepers and the selection and, and all of that, but but it does seem like in terms of developing views about of a society about here's what's happening to us now, here's who we are as a nation, and here's what's going to happen. I kind of miss the days where gatekeepers were helping to steer people towards things that were based in fact, for the most part, and mattered.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and, and even things like you know the number of copies that are published. Mm. If there's only 500 copies published of a book, that sense of you're part of a very small community of readers. But now everything is at our fingertips, and maybe that's actually quite overwhelming in a way that theoretically you could get hold of any book possible now and get hold of it quickly. So I wonder if people just don't as much as they as they used to, seeing a book as a as a treasure that can impart a very useful piece of knowledge. Mm.
0: Makes me wonder how things are for something like a podcast, which basically started out in the internet age and never had that period of selectivity and selection. Maybe that's which has obviously been good for me since no one was there to tell me not to do this. But um, it it does make me wonder when there's no cultural memory of, oh, remember when all we had were 10 podcasts to listen to? And so the whole society was listening to the same, you know, handful, but we have this whole plethora to pick from. There's no feeling that, oh, whatever is on a podcast is what everyone's going to be talking about that week or anything like that.
1: Yeah. Although I think, you know, maybe there's a flip side to that too, which is the sense of if you only have a small number of materials that everyone's reading, that's how propaganda breeds, right? Right. So having a wider array of materials to rely on is a good thing and it expands people's minds. But I think, you know, in the 1930s, 1920s, 1930s, having these books which deal with the region but don't deal with it directly i think in ways that's inviting the reader to do their own work
2: mm.
1: and kind of make their own mind up and putting the onus on the reader rather than being kind of you know having a sort of ideological standpoint that's very clear you know you're, you're saying to the reader you shape this book with with whatever you feel is the right thing to do i think um but i think it was eric amber who said in one of his no it's graham green graham green is what in one of his works he says about how history will tell us whether or not we're on the right or wrong side so it's a sense of you don't know at the time how things are going to pan out you don't know whether your way of life is going to be sustained and we can't give you all the information but you have to make your own mind up
0: well i am not going to miss the chance to give graham green the last word Julie and Fristin, <laughs> thank you so much for joining me on the history of literature
1: thank you so much for having me
0: Okay, that's going to do it for this episode. My thanks to Juliet for joining me. That was fun. Next week, it looks like we're going to have some Cervantes on our calendar and a surprising look at what he did and how it works for us today. We'll have some Shelley, too, I think. We're going to tackle one of his poems. Haven't decided which one yet. Lady Chatterley's Lover will be not far behind. And Kierkegaard, not far behind that. Perhaps a lot on our calendar. And next month, Halloween month, we're going to have two picks from Emma. Ooh, that should be good. Put your witch's hats on for those. <laughs> Put on your... <laughs> Did I screw that up? Put on your witch's hat for those. Witch's hats. I don't know. Or if you're... My sister, age seven, your witch's hat costume. A full body thing that made her look like a moving hat. Head to toe was all hat. The brim was down at her ankles. The point was up above her head. It's a cute little costume, but she couldn't bend her body when she was in it. And she had to ride in the car lying down flat. That was the year it started raining. We got swooped up and put in the back of the car. Except she couldn't sit; she had to lie down. Flat. And her friend that year, who also got a ride from us, was a scarecrow, and her arms were straight out, as they were attached to a board, and she couldn't get in the car door without help either. And then she had to lie down too. She, a, <laughs> one of them in the footwell, the other on the seat, and me in my usual costume, a hobo, sitting and watching them both in wonder Halloween is good stuff I'm Jack Wilson thank you for listening and we'll see you next time